This is Miradas, a podcast about the current affairs, politics and cultures of Latin America with Laurie Blair and myself, John Bartlett. Last week, we heard from microbiologist Cristina Dorador in the arid north of Chile. But this time we're zooming out to look at Latin America as a whole and the era of pink tide politics, the name broadly given to a swing to the left across the region in the 21st century. Our guest is BBC correspondent Will Grant, who has been working in Latin America since 2007 from bases in Venezuela, Mexico and Cuba, in which time he has covered a period that's given rise to some fascinating characters. His new book, Populista, The Rise of Latin America's 21st Century Strongman, pieces together the stories of the Pink Tide era to take a look at the leaders who built their movements around themselves. Hugo Chávez in Venezuela, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva in Brazil, Bolivia's Evo Morales, Rafael Correa over in Ecuador, uh, Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, and Fidel Castro in Cuba. In this chat, Will talks about the long afternoons he spent in Caracas trying to make sense of Chávez's rambling cadenas on state television, the meaning of caudillismo and its modern application, and the legacy of these leaders now that their time appears to be over. The book is out now, and we've included links to where you can buy it in the show notes, uh, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Right, Will, you and I met uh, a year ago now at a seafront bar in Havana, uh, albeit in a very different looking world. So how have you been over the last year or so? Yeah, it's good to see you again, John. Um, it has been uh, an interesting year, hasn't it? Or at least now we're out of 2020, but it was a very, very strange period. It's strange around the world, uh, but also particularly for Latin America, particularly for Cuba, um, which has struggled, I guess, with um, not just with COVID, where it's actually done quite well in kind of containing the spread of the virus but um, economically obviously the impact of the drop in tourism has been exponential so uh, I think you're probably one of the last people through the door with or before things started getting very very difficult there um, and that difficulty has been you know uh, expressed for you know so many families and so many people but on a personal level um, it's been interesting yeah I had a baby which is the main thing and the book is uh, you know hitting the shelves so that's very very exciting too so yeah it's been it's been an interesting time. It's been a good time. Yeah, congratulations on both counts. It's uh, yeah, it's <laughs> been a, a momentous year for you personally, uh, without a doubt. Um, so I was wondering then, also we're here to to mostly to talk about your new book, uh, Populista. Um, and I thought if you know, we could maybe introduce the conversation perhaps by you giving us the premise of the book and a bit of a background about your career as a reporter in Latin America over the last uh, you know 15, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, I think the book stemmed for me from the position of feeling like um, the pink tide, as it's so often known, um, which sort of started with the arrival of Hugo Chavez to power in 1999, um, was so often when I was reporting, asked to report on it, or, or, or was obviously in the field when I was the correspondent in Venezuela under Chavez, it was sort of homogenized very much and by smart editors too, by people who in a sense shouldn't, should know better. Um, it was just sort of seen as this monolithic thing that was happening in Latin America at the time. And to me, it was clearly the most important political phenomenon of the Western hemisphere in the 21st century. The, the idea that, you know, the vast 
majority of major governments in the region swung to the left. Uh, Mexico was an exception because Andres Manuel López Obrador, who of course is in power now as we speak, but wasn't only narrowly missed out in 2006. He was the exception, but elsewhere, you know, we can go through the list. Um, Brazil, uh, Chile, of course, uh, Argentina, Venezuela, you know, Colombia was was missed out, was not one, but apart from, you know, it was one of the very few around Bolivia, Ecuador. So it was such a, a fascinating moment. Um, but this fact that it was seen as such a monolithic moment, I felt needed debunking. Um, and I don't believe, or I certainly haven't read a book that has done that. So I partly set out to sort of show the differences between some of these leaders and their political movements, but also show some of the similarities because the truth of the matter is that there were things that bind some of these uh, men and they were by and large men, although not exclusively, um, but, uh, but sort of bound them and their political projects. And, and that I thought was well worth looking at. So it's a sort of exercise, if you like, at, um, deconstruction which is also you know always a, an awful word but certainly like uh, unpicking a little bit uh, who these people were where they came from how they came to be how their political moments came to be their political moment in the sun and then their sort of legacy um, because obviously there's been the good the bad and the ugly in, 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 in every sense um, and, and we are still living uh, absolutely in the region with the uh, the legacy of, of, of that moment. Some of it is very positive, some of it is extremely ugly. And, and I think now that enough time has passed, some of the characters in question are no longer in power, some have even died, uh, that I think we can slightly step back and, and, and get a sense of it a little bit more. And that's interesting that you say that obviously, you know, these leaders, move, perhaps not their movements in all, in all cases, but the leaders certainly have largely moved on or passed on. Um, in that in that sense then did you find that um it was you know the the right moment to perhaps bookend the the pink tide and to say that this was kind of you know perhaps the moment to, to kind of pull the trigger on your kind of decades of reporting and then did you find that populism was the sort of unifying force and the style of leadership perhaps rather than you know i mean to kind of link the ide ideological ground which you don't necessarily do in, in all cases you do find similarities as you say but you know did you find that it was rather the style of leadership rather than you know the, the movements that they were they were they were putting together that was the the unifying factor yeah that's a you know that's a good way of, of of framing it i think you're certainly right in terms of the book ending so i i felt like i wanted to start with Hugo chavez coming to power in 1999 and end with the death of fidel castro in 2016. those to me felt very very clear start and end points which i experienced uh, as a reporter or a producer at the bbc so um or certainly involved in latin american affairs uh, i was still doing a, a a master's um, kind of at that time but you know that kind of trajectory roughly coincides with my trajectory as a journalist so that was um, very helpful on one level and I had a lot of personal experience with um, some of these moments some of these leaders I got access to them as well and obviously get, when you get access to them after the event they're slightly more reflexive and calmer than they would have been when you know their their sort of feet were still in the trenches a little bit um, and I could also you know kind of helpfully i hope double up with times that i'd spoken to them at the time and then spoken to them afterwards particularly in case of say uh rafael correa who i was able to catch up with in belgium and um obviously i'd had a little bit of access um to chavez although 
kind of your access to Chavez is more to the sort of show of Chavez that kind of rumbles all around the country and, 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 and him as a figure and him as a movement, you know. Um, but your point about it being perhaps more about the leaders and what they shared rather than the movements of what they shared. I think that's an interesting one and one that um, if, if I've done nothing else, at least I've, I've begin to put out there. I don't I don't pretend nor do I expect to kind of reach definitive conclusions. And I think the one thing of, of coming at this as a BBC reporter is that uh, I expect my audience to, to, to reach their own conclusions, particularly when you're dealing with these polarising issues that, that they don't necessarily want me sitting in judgment. Well, this guy's good, that guy's bad. This woman's great, that woman's terrible. Do you know what I mean? I just don't think that's, that's very useful. What I do think is useful is to at least explain to an audience that perhaps didn't previously know how it came to be that Chavez, you know, just assailed power in such an incredible way, um, not just in 1999, but subsequently, and what he'd done before and, and what where Venezuela had been coming from at, until that point and why people would vote in such vast numbers and why he was such a bulwark for the rest of the region, who Lula was, how he came to be, you know, and so on and so forth. Because, you know, hopefully with all decent history writing, you don't know where you're going until you've written about where you've come from. And, and I think if it did that, then it's done something um, halfway useful. But I do think that, um, yeah, I think there is an element in terms of stylistic ways of working in kind of appealing to the, 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 uh, the, the voter, the electorate, um, who was exhausted with the status quo, exhausted with the corruption, exhausted with Washington craven governments from decades or military dictatorships. Um, you know, I think that all of these people people managed to tap into a certain something and how they did that differed I think in each context but they managed to do that and and that I think is where the populism comes out now there will be critics who say well that's not populism that's just being popular but I think when we begin to look at it and this sort of particularly in certain instances the use of the kind of messiah rhetoric the kind of religious you know uh, ideals those are quite interesting and also I think what we find is the I am the people and the people are me so if you're the people you've got to vote for me you know this idea was perpetuated and it may be said to be as old as you know latin america itself and hopefully i've tried to show that too but i think what they did is really encapsulate it harden it in a sense um, and run with it in the way that the left hadn't done up until that stage i don't think um really uh, certainly in uh, in recent memory at least mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's really interesting and just to you know to to backtrack again a little bit you um you say that to look you've got to sort of look backward to uh, to understand the context of what was happening at that given time which i think is something that you do really well you put these uh, these kind of six leaders and their uh, and their movements in context really nicely which is you know for me that was something i really enjoyed because i hadn't um you know my my knowledge of ortega for example is, is poor i didn't know a huge amount about chavez's ascent to power that kind of thing so i think there's a lot of kind of really rich detail in there which is really um really interesting but so just in terms of your own reporting obviously kind of cuba and venezuela there are the two the two cases that you probably knew best um and you'll see you know you say that you basically kind of started with one and ended with the other and i think that you're right in putting those as sort of natural bookends but what was your what um, what kind of access did you have in in the other cases you said that you talked to you talked to Korea and belgium as well as uh, uh previously in ecuador but was that just kind of you know roving reporting around the region that you did uh and something that you kind of you know felt kind of was building towards a uh, a kind of a, a book project that would put all these things together 
Yeah, I think partly. So, you know, you, you, you begin to know or feel it in your bones, I think, when you've got a, a book brewing. And I've only, you know, had this, this one proper shot at it, but I felt like it was the culmination of a lot of time, you know, in the field. So um, I was the correspondent um, between 2008 and 2011 in Venezuela under Chavez, but I've been there a, a bunch the year beforehand for some pretty key moments and obviously reported on it. Uh, from distance before then uh, at the BBC World Service um, and um, and then uh, the, the travel kind of linked me to a whole bunch of moments like even in 2007 I'd been sent to Rafael Correa's first referendum which you know he absolutely uh, again just steamrolled the opposition I think it was something like 80 odd percent that he won for a new constitution and a new constituent assembly. So, you know, those moments I got to see up close, even though I was kind of still finding my feet as a reporter. But I also then went back later on for various moments, uh, Assange, uh, you know, supposedly looking for uh, asylum um, and, and uh, Snowden too. So I, I went back a couple of times to Ecuador and managed to catch up with Rafael Correa, at least on one of those occasions. But then there's been other moments that are a bit more modern, if you like, uh, or a bit more recent. So um, I spoke to Lula in prison in Curitiba, which was really interesting. And, it, you know, it was such, it stood out so much because normally when you speak to former presidents, you're at some lavish home or some kind of hotel suite, or you're in the UK because they're doing a book tour or they're talking for the UN or something and you catch up with them there and it's all pretty stage managed. And here was this thing, you know, like in prison, this guy who still was really effectively Brazil's most popular politician. Uh, and as we were talking, the case against him was, you know, collapsing and all of this wiretapping that had been going on. And, and, you know, it was just all so sketchy. So it was really a very, very interesting moment to, to catch up with him. And he was very frank. In fact, they both were. Uh, and then I think the other things I caught up with uh, Evo Morales when he reached Mexico. But, you know, he was very much in the defense of his position. He was just sort of repeating the same mantras as, as ever. Um, so I feel like, you know, I got a good spread of, of, of first hand experience and then other things that just wove into that you know I've been to uh, Nicaragua a fair few times Bolivia a fair few times Brazil once I think back to hang on I've been quite a lot now and you realize that each in each case that you've got um, at least the strength uh, to speak about um, enough for a, for a decent sized chapter I always very, very conscious of, of speaking from a position of at least decent authority so obviously each one of these chapters is a book in themselves you know and there are some very very strong chapter uh, books written about each of these individuals certainly Fidel certainly Jarrett uh, and Lula too but um, but what I tried to do was reach the likes of you John who obviously knows your material and uh, very much across the region and its politics and live in the region and you know understand Latin America but also those who don't um, but have an interest in it and um, and and hopefully we've managed to do that because you know you, do, you don't need to be blind to Latin American politics to, to notice that you know there is something going on that does then later echo elsewhere in the world you know th these are weird times in terms of populism we we can be said to this in seeing that the mark of populism the length and breadth of Europe obviously the United States you know it is um, 
it is present in Asia, it's, it's sort of rearing its head in political parties of the world over. And in a sense, what happened in Latin America is a really, really interesting blueprint for how and in what ways these things can turn out. Yeah, I, th I think you're right there. That I think that there's, there's certainly something in there for non-specialists. And as you, if you said uh, at the very beginning, I think Latin America is a region that's kind of washed over quite a lot in terms of generalizations. It's sort of, you know, alternately described as the forgotten continent. And then, um, you know, often, you know, people don't, don't even talk about it at all in terms of these kind of wider, uh, like political trends around the world. So, I mean, just talking then just to, to move into something that's, you know, very Latin American, very specifically, almost uniquely Latin American, which is this concept of the caudillo. Uh, which you introduced right at the very beginning once you say that kind of populism is the sort of defining political um, kind of trend uh, in the modern world, which I, yeah, I agree. I think that's, that's, that's very interesting. But the Caldeal then, that's something that's been around since, you know, the sort of the early mid 1800s, perhaps before, but without a name. Um, and so that's something that's, that's really interesting. Could you just explain kind of what that is, how you can uh, sort of legitimately paint the leaders that, you, that, you've, that you've portrayed here with that term? And then, uh, and then, yeah, I think we can just discuss that a little bit further as to kind of, um, you know, how much of a dis um, how much of the discussion is actually about the kind of uh, is portrays their followers rather than the leaders themselves when you use that term. Yeah, so Caldeismo or Caldeos uh, is essentially, in my, to my mind, as old as sort of Latin American politics itself, or sort of contemporary or modern, as you say, the nineteen. 19th century onwards, the, the, the independence movements, this is where the, the, the age of Caldeos appeared from in Latin America. A hard thing to define, you know, one man's Caldeo is another person's, you know, uh, sort of uh, popular leader or, or, or you know, this, this term isn't, isn't very, um, it's not a very comfortable um, translation, I think, to English. Strongman, I don't really think captures it somehow. I think it's a little clumsy as a word. Um, but I do think it's um, I do think it's valid to sort of sort of set them up in a sense as the modern day Caldeos, because certainly Latin America is peppered with these major figures, and, and you find I think uh, with enough reporting of uh, elections, and I've done a, a great deal of election reporting, particularly in Venezuela, but all over the continent really. Um, you find that people are drawn very very much to the the strong figure. Um, and that they turn and say, what we need is somebody to come in here and sort this out. Not a sense of like, we need a party where there's a bit more, you know, um, a bit more input from us and that the, the party has um, greater strength against opposition parties and that the opposition party, like it's important for oppositions to be strong so that we can share ideas and that you know, there's people, you know, I want somebody to come in here and sort all these guys out. That you hear often and I'm sure anyone who's reported on Latin American election has heard that somewhere along the line from a voter somewhere. And it's understandable because those people who should be being sorted out are often incredibly corrupt inept, incompetent, you know, stealing, blind from the coffers, you know, it's quite understandable where that sentiment comes from. So perhaps, you know, we've played a little bit fast and loose with the concept. Uh, and I'm not here again to sort of sit in judgment, and say, well, Chavez is a cow deal, but Lula isn't, for example. You know, again, I leave it very much to the audience to decide what they make of these figures. But I think what it does is it lends us an understanding of kind of 
the phenomenon of Calvillo and how it's not gone away, how it might metamorphize in, in the 21st century as we kind of get deeper into the 21st century, which is why I think it was important to, to raise the specter of uh, Bolsonaro, you know, that he, he needs to be seen in his context as a military-esque figure, uh, certainly with military roots, somebody who would happily take a battering ram to bits of the legislature, um, would rewrite things if he had the opportunity, doesn't really care for opponents, opposition parties, opposition viewpoints, you know, and is happy to be as controversial as need be because he is using that broom or whatever the, the term that they like, that, you know, that his supporters like to use is to sort of wipe the slate clean, to brush the past away. And this is something I believe that, you know, we, we've seen. And we've seen in its worst expressions in the military dictatorships of Pinochet and uh, Trujillo and all of these kind of, you know, Stresner, all of these figures appear in the book somewhere along the line because they're relevant to our understanding of contemporary Latin America. We can't really understand these men without understanding a little bit about some of the figures that they reach political consciousness through. But also I talk about Fidel Castro, um, who is you know, very much an influence on all of the figures uh, I write about, Daniel Ortega, Fidel, um, Hugo Chavez, even Lula to an extent, certainly Evo Morales, certainly Rafael Correa. And you know, while it sometimes pains the left, it's well worth looking you know, at, at Cuba and that chapter uh, with some care because of the way um, that Fidel exercised his power. Um, it's, it, it, there, it, there is no dissent barred. And, and that is still very, very much in evidence in Cuba today, more so than ever, perhaps. Yeah, and I think that if we, if we view all of these, you know, the expression of Calvismo is something that's, um, you know, requires um, certainly a sort of critical mass of people to say, right, we want this sorting out, we want this changing, which is what we saw in Brazil, you know, this is, this, you know, with, with Bolsonaro recently, I mean, that's, you know, he came in with a very um, limited brief, I think, to, to sort things out, he's not really done that or anything much uh, in, in those terms. Um, so is this, is this something that's always going to kind of plague Latin American politics? Are we always going to see uh, the left say they want things sorting out, the pink tide came in, as you as you as you say the legacy of this was that they kind of they managed to kind of create this um you know they did alleviate some of the problems that they set out to do but it was a short-term fix you know and then in some cases uh if we kind of focus more in brazil than anywhere else at the moment i think that you know the, sim the same kind of calls have come but from the right this time and they've been answered by somebody is this just going to keep happening is this a kind of a, a pattern that will keep repeating itself yeah look i mean i think you know in a sense, the next the next book after this one might be called something along the lines of the rise of the right, um, because you know the spaces have been created by which either in in certain instances like um, uh, Venezuela, the the left, uh, if if we want to consider that's what um, Nicolas Maduro actually is, and this isn't perhaps it starts reaching points where it's not even that ideological anymore. It's much more about power and retaining power and strengthening the grip on power, which is just to go back to an earlier point, the Calvinismo concept, you know, the military might behind that is key. And I think uh, I try to very much show that in the Venezuela chapter, you know, the strength of the kind of Bolivarian military or, or, or a very much loyalist military is absolutely key. So if they're not military men themselves, uh, as they 
were in the 1960s and 70s, the military are very much on side by by whatever means, if even that's you know cushy jobs or or, or important you know incomes or or control over import export or wherever it might be, or control over food distribution, or obviously the the the, the great pearl in the, the Venezuelan example is the, the oil industry, you know, keeping them sweet and keeping them loyal. So you know, that, that is key. And yes, I do agree that it, it is a phenomenon that is much of the right as it is of the left, and more of the right traditionally. But all I'm saying perhaps in this book is these figures I, I, I've shown is that it wasn't absent, nor would, nor would it, you know, ever not be absent, I think, from the left either in, in certain instances. Now, I do think there are some, you know, very democratic figures there too. I do think, I, I think I explicitly say that Lula was a man who I think has real respect for the rule of, of um, sort of democratic rule that he stood down, he didn't try to mess with the constitution, even though he probably would have been able to get away with it had he wanted to, you know, he would have easily been able to be voted in for a third term. He didn't try, whereas a lot of these other guys did. Um, he didn't see that as being in, in Brazil's benefit, um, or potentially his own. I mean, I don't, you know, don't hold him up as a saint by any means, but I do think, you know, that there are differences between the men that are in the book. But Daniel Ortega now uh, and his wife have absolutely strengthened their control over the institutions of the state, the apparatus of the state, including their relationship with the military. And he's simply not going to, to, to leave power, I think, by um, you know, a free and fair election in the, in the short term. I mean, I just, I personally can't see that happening, right? So, and of course, we've seen what's happened very recently in Venezuela. So, what has the legacy been? Well, each one sort of depends on, on the context it, it, uh, it refers to. But in some cases, it's been to harden and strengthen that kind of ugly part uh, of the left, uh, the, the Venezuela, Ortega kind of examples. Uh, and in others, I think it's left the, the playing field open to very powerful individual figures from the right to occupy the space look at the corruption the left left you know what i mean so we now you need the right wing reaction and this isn't to simplify the voter but often there are you know somewhere along the line somebody voted for lula and also voted for bolsonaro somebody was going to vote for lula until the constitutional court said he couldn't stand because he was in prison and went on to vote for bolsonaro so you know there are interesting phenomenons that, that are very much about the individual being more powerful, more important, superseding the, the party. And, and, and I think I also lay out pretty much when the respect for the opponents, not only their political opinions and their, their role in a, in a functioning um, democracy and a functioning political system, but actually the very lives of the oppositions. You know, so the kids take to the streets, well, send the military out. You know, once that starts happening and that circle of violence starts getting worse and worse and worse because you'll frankly do anything to remain in power, then I think things start getting particularly ugly. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting. I think firstly on the point of, of legacy, I think you've um, you know in, in several of these cases these leaders have uh, left behind constitutions, which are obviously kind of fundamental um, kind of frameworks for uh, for how the legacy can be um, implemented and achieved. Um, but I think on the on the other side, you've also got this sort of um, this sort of personalistic kind of egocentrism in in uh, the, you know not all of the cases quite, but 
you know, I think you could make a case certainly in each of the cases that, you know, that, um, that these kind of powers so heavily concentrate in this sort of, um, uh, sort of, you know, the, the visage of the, of the leader themselves, you know, was that one of the failures and was that, was, was that one of the reasons why this, the, these movements kind of ground to a halt and in each case, or is that again too much of a generalization to make across six different people? No, I think it's a good one. I think one point you make about a constitution is also very, very valid in the sense that, um, as a friend of mine, a Venezuelan friend of mine said at the time, um, you know, if you're making origami with a constitution, you know, then it leaves it free for somebody else to kind of, you know, have, have, have at it with whatever you've kind of stated. So, you know, in the Venezuelan example, it remains the pesuv, but, you know, let's face it, they can do pretty much what they wish at this stage. And, and you know, that, that, is, um, that is quite concerning. What um, what I think you're really correct on is is this in you know the individuals that, that these are top heavy uh, revolutions. I, I say that in in, in in quotation marks if you like, um, but certainly uh, political social movements that they were always portrayed as somehow being bottom up. But in fact, when you look at look at them really. In most examples, they were pretty top down, that it was everything had to go through the prism of Chavez. And you saw it just in their ministers, you know, so Chavez would announce something on these hours long TV shows or these cadenas, you know, that would go on and on and on, riffing and just inventing and holding his audience wrapped and making people laugh. It was, you know, it was a it was a show. He was a showman. And in that. He would announce, okay, so the new plan on education, education is tal cosa, or, or, or we're going to do whatever in the healthcare system involving Cuban doctors arriving, you know, the day after tomorrow. And as journalists, we'd all kind of scratch our heads and kind of go, well, how, how's this going to work? And we'd turn to the ministry or we'd turn to somebody and we'd say, well, what? And, and they'd kind of say, you know, and, and I'm paraphrasing, that we don't know, but what he said, you know, everything goes through the top guy. And Cuba is the ultimate example of that. Everything went through Fidel. And even when Raul took over, um, when Fidel uh, became ill, the same idea happened. You know, Fidel was still there for the top, you know, the top decisions, but everything had to go through the Raul or the Castro brothers before, you know, it could be implemented really by the rubber stamp organization of the Politburo and, you know, the Communist Party. So these aren't as much as there are very clever and, and, and you know very carefully delineated structures down at the barrio level the truth of the matter is that in the vast majority of these things all of the decision making is at the top and the barrio is led to believe do you know what I mean that they are the the actor the way that they are the actor I think is that they were prioritized they were made visible so it's no longer stigma, you know, and this is the one benefit, well, one of the several benefits, I think, but one of the key benefits that they did bring to the table is that it was no longer, um, you no longer had to be ashamed of being poor, of being black, of being indigenous, that they were, you know, they made some serious strides in that area, making it obligatory on whoever comes next of the left or right to have them front and center. Now, whether or not they have them front and center just in the rhetoric and then go on to do next to nothing, well, we'll see. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, you looked at like Enrique Capriles Rodonsky for the opposition, when he was standing against Chavez, suddenly this wasn't like an old school opposition figure talking about, you know, the benefits for the 
you know, the big business and Venezuelan industry, suddenly he's like on the streets rubbing shoulders in the barrios. And you think you've just learned, you know, you've learned that from Chavez very smartly, but you know, this is that, this is that, you know? And so, yeah, I think um, it's kind of a rambling answer, but hopefully it sort of touches on a, a, a few of the ideas. Yeah, definitely. No, absolutely. I think then just to just to sort of yeah round things out then um, in terms of how history will remember uh, this kind of set of, of leaders. Obviously, it's a you know going to ask you to put your neck out a little bit and just say kind of how you think that um, you know the, the effect the effect that you think these people have had on Latin America's generation of politicians um, in terms of you know what they're going to leave behind and you know was this something that had uh, were these people did they have the kind of uh, the effects they wanted to in the short term but ultimately weren't able to sustain it beyond themselves when they kind of when they passed on or voted or uh, or left power or how do you how do you kind of view it in the long term i think when we look at the fact that the commodities prices crashed around the region we can see which of these movements were robust enough to outlive that and which were and so i think Evo morales quite clearly achieved real differences in pulling people out of poverty yet Bolivia remains the poorest country in South America, you know. Um, but there's no denying, economically speaking, he made serious inroads. Lula too, Bolsa Familia was a, a, you know, a, a really important measure that dragged millions out of poverty. There should be no real question about that, whether or not one is of the left or the right. It should be, it should be simple enough to analyze those figures and say, yeah, these were achievements. And, and as I say, I'm a big believer in some of the less perhaps quantifiable uh, achievements, but equally important, the, the, the pulling people out of stigma, the, 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 vision, the, the, the making very visible, making the visibility of, of black, of women, uh, of black population, of women, of in the indigenous population, of the kind of marginalized. That was, you know, that was important and overdue. And hopefully, you know, I, I managed to make it clear why it was so overdue in the book and why people were so appreciative, appreciative of, of, of leaders who were, who were trying to do that. So I think in the benefits of their legacy, we can look at those sorts of examples. And I think those will live on, you know, beyond, uh, or Chavez clearly and, 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 and plenty of the other leaders who are now reaching quite an advanced stage in some cases, Daniel Ortega, for example. The ugly side of it is also particularly self-evident. You only need to, to look at four million odd people on, uh, on the road from four million odd Venezuelans leaving the country in the space of two to three years, crossing the Andes by foot, you know, just really punishing movements, the biggest um, mass immigration in Latin America um, since, since the Second World War. I mean, just in, incredible movements of people um, and, and the co total collapse of the economy there. Um, the authoritarian control in certain places, particularly uh, Nicaragua is frightening. Uh, and the fact that we can pretty much hand on heart say that you won't be removing from power uh, or expect to see moved from power uh, the current governing parties or individuals in, you know, the, in Venezuela, uh, Nicaragua or Cuba uh, by, you know, a simple ballot, I shouldn't have thought, you know, I don't, I don't think that's about to happen. Um, so what, 
is there any overarching kind of legacy, either good, bad or ugly? Again, I, I think it is so polarizing that only, you know, it, 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 it comes down to one's politics so much that, you know, it, one person could read the book and have one completely opposing view to somebody else. And, and I think that's the case in Latin America these days that people just, it's guttural, you know, it, it, it's much more from the heart than from the head in a, in a sense. Um, that, you know, you can almost see that in reactions to COVID and so on. But I mean, I think, I think what they have done is uh, in, 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 a, in a slightly, in a very concerning sense, is set up a kind of another generation of political leaders that have, that have seen and, and, and watched this pink tide and learned a lot of lessons about how to appeal to the masses. So, you know, they may have very, very little to offer, but that might not stop them being in power for a decade. Do you know what I mean? Because there's a lot of smoke and mirrors used, as I think, I think the book shows. And, um, and that's probably not great because the last thing Latin American electorate, electorates need at this stage is, is more lies uh, and, and further corruption um, and, and less trans, uh, transparency and accountability. So I think that it would be, you know, the, 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 perhaps the most concerning side of, of some of that period, um, despite the undeniable achievements made in some places, and the fact that, as you say, in certain places, those achievements that were made in the short term have been lost three or fourfold since then, which suggests to me that they weren't robust revolutions or social movements in the first places that they, you know, they came up. And the question was always, but what happens when, you know, the oil price, the soya price, the sugar price drops? And, the, you know, the answer is sort of self-evident before us. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, lastly, and the book is out on the 7th of January. Is that right? I have a copy in my hands as we speak. And it's out on the 7th of January, available from all good bookshops um, and online, of course. So, yeah, um, the big places like Amazon.co.uk, um, but also any um, any independent bookstore will be able to get it in if they don't already stock it or small or, or, or obviously big chain bookstores like Waterstones and stuff. And important for Latin America is theoretically, at least, and I believe it's the case that any store that stocks English language books can get it. Um, and then we're still waiting to see exactly when it will roll out in the US market and in Spanish, but plans are afoot and they're dealt with by people who are much smarter than I am and uh, having interesting conversations in smoke-filled rooms somewhere, so yeah. Perfect, well, thank you so much for your time and uh, yeah, best of luck with the publicity and everything. And we'll, I'm sure, see each other once, uh, well, when and when and or if uh, all of this improves. It'd be great to see yeah. you again in Havana at some point. Absolutely, John, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks very, very much. Likewise, thank you. That was my good friend John Bartlett talking to BBC journalist Will Grant about Will's new book, Populista, which is out now. Thanks very much to Will for his time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed the episode, please follow us on social media at MuradasPod, where you can find links to our previous guests, get in touch, and sign up to our newsletter so you never miss an episode. We're back next week. I'm Laurie Blair. Take care and Godspeed. Godspeed.